0: Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Cat, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Cat. Mark chapter three. The controversy around Jesus continues. Jesus is riding a great wave of popularity, but at the same time, conflict is building. Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, and the Sadducees are all building and mounting to bring an attack against him. In verse 2, it says they were watching him on the Sabbath. And it says why they were watching him, in order that they might accuse him. That word accuse means to bring formal charges against him. And shortly after that, it says in verse 6 that the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. The Pharisees teamed up with a group of individuals that they despised. It is funny how hate makes strange bedfellows. They wanted to accuse him and then they went to the point of wanting to destroy him. Accusation always leads to destruction. The mere accusation can bring the destruction of a character, of a life, of a ministry. And there are three questions that we're going to try to answer tonight and every one of us will have to answer before we leave here tonight. First of all, have you answered God's call to discipleship? Secondly, how do you deal with those who distract you? And thirdly, have you blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Have you answered God's call? How do you deal with those that distract and detract you from what God has called you to do? And have you blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Here they are not just trying to discredit his ministry, but they're trying to destroy him. And so in verses 7 through 12, Jesus leaves the synagogue and goes to the Sea of Galilee, and the crowds are flocking to him. And at this point, he withdraws. Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus spent all night in prayer before picking the twelve. It's amazing to me how often churches will call pastors staff members, select deacons, put people in leadership position and never spend five minutes in prayer, much less spending all night in prayer. Don't you think we'd get a better quality of people if we spent all night in prayer before we put anybody in a leadership position? The reason the prayer ministry is so important because through prayer, God can stir our hearts and direct us and move us and define us in ways that he can't do in any other way. Because in prayer, we have to lay aside our opinions. We have to lay aside our preconceived ideas and we have to find out what it is God wants to do and who it is that God wants to use that we may not have thought of. And so there are three things, two things really, that I want you to see tonight and several things under each one. First is a call to discipleship and I want you to read with me verse 14. And he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out the demons. Now, if you want to write some little notes in your Bible, in verse 13, they were called by Jesus. In verse 14, they were chosen by Jesus. And in verse 15, they were changed by Jesus. Called, chosen, and changed. Now. You need to notice something about discipleship. They did not choose Jesus, Jesus chose them. We never choose Jesus. He first chooses us. He first sets us aside. He first calls us and then he changes us. So there's a threefold purpose in the call of Jesus on our lives. First of all, it's to teach and train for ministry. Every one of us, whether you're dealing with the disciples at this point or you're dealing with us today, every one of us are called to teach and train us for ministry. All of us have a ministry, something that God wants to do in us and through us. Secondly, he calls to send them out to preach. Now, he calls some to teach. He calls some to uh, be evangelists. He calls some to uh, serve in various capacities, but these he called these twelve for the specific purpose to send them out to preach. And then thirdly, it's right there in verse 14, to have authority to speak in his name and to cast out demons. Now in the New Testament time, the rabbis and the Pharisees all had disciples. Having disciples was a big thing. It was a big thing in Greek culture. Plato and Socrates and all of the philosophers had disciples. Webster defines a disciple as one who subscribes to the teachings of a master and assists in spreading those teachings. Or it says, an active adherent as of a movement. Jesus chose those who were already following him. I've got an idea that he chose people who were kind of hanging around after the meeting was over. Those that were moving in close those that were a little more in tune, those that he could catch in their eyes and in their spirit and in their body language that they were catching on to what he was doing, those that hungered, those that asked questions, those that wanted to know more about the things of God. He selected them. He picked them out. He called them. He chose them. And then he changed them. Now, you see, from our perspective, if we look at it in a purely secular, carnal mind, Jesus played favorites. I mean, why did those 12 get to be with him and we didn't? And if you really want to look at it from a secular standpoint, why did just three get to go with him to the garden? And you want to talk about what creates jealousy, and that is when we start playing the secular game of why did he choose him and not me? That creates jealousy, and strife when we look at it from a secular standpoint. But you see, Jesus didn't have any favorites. He only had intimates. And the level of intimacy once they were called and chosen was determined by the disciple, not by Jesus. You see, Peter, James, and John wanted to go further with Jesus. They were desirous to do more with Christ than the others, and so they got to go to another level. They got to be more in his inner circle because they had the desire within them to learn and to hunger and to grow and to spend time with them, and there was something in them that even though he called all 12, he saw something even in those three that he didn't see in the other nine. It's not saying that Jesus thought the other nine were insignificant, because God doesn't have any favorites. It is saying that we determine the level of our intimacy with the Father. God makes himself available to all, but we make the decision how far we go and how deep we go in our relationship with Jesus. It's not based on education. It's not based on appearance. It's not based on personality. It was based on a call of God. I like what Martin Luther said about those that Jesus chose. He said, Jesus can carve with rotten wood and ride a lame horse. And I tell you, when I look at my life, he's used a lot of rotten wood and he's ridden a lot of lame horses. It's incredible what God can do with an available tool. God chose men who had a heart after God and it says in verse 13, they came to him. That word would better translate, they went away unto him or they walked away from something to go to him. They walked away from their vocations. They walked away from their security. They walked away from their family. They walked away from something to walk to Jesus. They came unto him. He called, they responded, and they reacted. Discipleship, when I first started in ministry, was not a very popular word. In fact, you couldn't find many books written on discipleship. Now you can find all kinds of books written on discipleship. Everybody talks about discipleship. Not many people do it. Discipleship is to follow one who is your master. It is to learn from him. It is to absorb from him all the things that you can. It is to squeeze out everything that you can so that you can take it in and make it a part of your life. Today, we have what J.I. Packer calls hot tub religion. Packer says the hot tub experience is sensuous, relaxing, floppy, and laid back, not in any way demanding, and many want Christianity to be like that and labor to make it so. The ultimate step would be to clear the church auditorium of seats and install hot tubs in their places. We would then dodge tough tasks, unpopular stances, and exhausting relationships. Jesus calls them. He conditions them, and then he commissions them. He calls them into himself. He conditions them by discipling them, by planting his life in them. You realize that Jesus told them everything he needed to tell them in three years. And then he left ministry in their hands. Why well, it takes us three years to come up with anything in the average Baptist church. Jesus established a whole worldwide ministry with a handful of renegades and, and rednecks and a few other things. I mean, you know, this was not... The GQ looking group in the world. I mean, these guys were losers by everybody's perspective except God's. And God chose them and changed the world through them. And in fact, 50 years after the crucifixion of Christ, we were closer to the world being evangelized than we are today with all the stuff that we've got. Discipleship is a call unto Jesus Himself, it's not a call to a method. It is not a call to a program. It's not a call to some idea. It is a call to a person. And these 12 came to Jesus, and they did not come blind. It is obvious in the time that Mark covers that there's a period of time here between when Jesus began his ministry and the calling of the 12. They were seeing that the opposition was growing. They were understanding that everything was, wasn't going to be a bed of roses, that this was a call on their life. They knew what it meant, and they accepted the call. Now, if you just want to write down somewhere, Matthew 22, verse 14, which says, Many are called and few are chosen. That literally reads, Many are called, but few choose to come. Many are called, but cho- few choose to come to come call of discipleship is on every one of us in this room but few choose to follow it and the need of the hour is for God to do something in us that keeps us from wanting to live comfortable secure lives and keeps us from compulsive behavior and frantic activity and gets us focused on a call of God on our lives Rob and uh, Danny and I went to a conference a couple of weeks ago, and were there for three days. And I was reminded of something that I learned a long time ago, and I forgot, and I needed to remember it: that leaders have to spend 80 percent of their time with 20 percent of the people if they're going to reproduce their lives. that if you spend 80 percent of your time with 20 percent of the people, you reproduce your life. Otherwise, you get spread too thin. Now, you know as well as I do, those of you that teach Sunday school classes, you can't spend individual time with everybody in your Sunday school department, can you? Am I the only one? You can't, can you? So what do you have to do? You have to find the few that are ready to go with you and understand your heart and understand the direction you're going in, and then you let them infiltrate out through the Sunday school department and they share your vision with the people in Sunday School Department. You see, it works all the way through any organization of the church. Jesus invested his life. You say, well, that's not fair. He was only here three years. How could he just spend time with those twelve? That's not fair for him to do that. Well, that's your opinion. Jesus believed that it was important for him to invest his life in twelve. If he had only invested his life in the 5,000 that he fed, we wouldn't be where we are today in Christianity. We wouldn't have the Gospels. We wouldn't have most of the writings that we have. Uh, Christianity would be in shambles if it was even in existence. But because he focused on the 12, there was a call to discipleship. And you see, you choose the level of discipleship that you go to. Not me, not the deacons, not the staff, you do. I choose the level of discipleship that I go to. Somebody asked me one time, said, so "Well you know how do you get to know people?" I had a guy walk up to me one time and said, "How'd you get to know John Bassano? How do you get to know somebody like that?" I mean that guy's you, you know, you call a First Baptist Church, Houston, Texas. there are 22,000 members of that church. How do you get to get in to see him? How do you talk to him I tell you how. It was real easy. I picked up the phone one day. I decided I wanted to get to know John Bassano. And I picked up the phone one day and I said, Dr. Bassano, you're coming to Oklahoma City to speak for three days. I would like to pick you up at the airport, I'd like to carry your bags, I'd like to take you out to eat, and I'd like to take you back to the airport. I'm your taxi driver for three days. Can I do it? He said, you bet. And that's how I got to know John Bassano. You know what I discovered? Everybody eats at least one meal a day. (laughs) And if you want to spend time with somebody, all you got to say is, can I buy your lunch? Could I buy you breakfast? Could I take you out to supper? And I hadn't met too many people yet that turned down that offer. Most of the people that I've gotten to know that have impacted my life and influenced my life and changed me have been people that I took money out of my pocket and bought them a meal. And said, Listen, I just want to pick your brain. I just want to spend some time with you. I want to learn from you. And if you can give me an hour at lunch, I'll talk to you. Driving to the restaurant, I'll talk to you at the restaurant, you talk to me, we'll drive back and I'll leave you alone. It was that simple. Most of what I've learned has been before, after, or during a meal with people that I wanted to get to know. You ever spot anybody in the church, you say, boy, you know, I wish I knew how to witness to people like that guy. I, I wish I could be a Sunday school teacher like that person. I, well, call them up, ask if you can go out to eat with them, ask them if they'll come over to your house and spend some time with them and find out what it is. You're not going to get it by osmosis. It doesn't fall out in the air around here. So there's some questions that you need to ask yourself about the level of discipleship that you are at. Where you find yourself in this call to discipleship, first of all, what do you want more than anything? What do you want more than anything? If you're going to be a disciple, the first question you've got to answer is, what do I want? How much of a disciple do I want to be? How deep do I want to go with the Lord? The second question, what do you think about above everything else? What's the thing that you think about more than anything else? That'll tell you a lot about where you are in your discipleship. Number three, how do you use your money? How do you use your money? You say, I knew he was going to talk about tithing with discipleship. No, I'll tell you what I'm going to talk about. Ninety-two percent of the Christian community has never darkened the door of a Christian bookstore. Ninety-two percent. If you're interested in discipleship, you ought to do some basics. You ought to have a concordance, You ought to have a word study. You ought to have have a good one-volume commentary on the Bible. You ought to buy some individual commentary series. You ought to buy every commentary that Warren Wiersbe writes. There's some books I can. You ought to buy every book on prayer E.M. Bounds wrote. There's some books that you ought to spend your money on. Not check out from the church library. We've got all that stuff in there, but you need to make the investment so you'll use it. How do you use your money? Do you invest in eternal things? I. I go through the airport and I go in bookstores and I see all these people. I was standing in the bookstore yesterday and I heard this lady saying, You know, I've got everything Stephen King wrote. And I thought, Gag and puke, lady, what is wrong with you? I didn't know if she was confessing or bragging, I couldn't figure out what she was doing. The only thing that's good for is starting a fire because that's where it's all going to burn anyway, if you get my drift. How do you use your money? Do you invest in your life spiritually? If you're a Sunday school teacher, you ought to buy Howard Hendricks' book called Living by the Book on how to do good interpretation of the Bible. You ought to invest in your ministry and in your life by buying stuff for yourself that can help you grow in your relationship to Christ. Now, if you want a list of books to buy, I can give you about 350 just to start with. And after you get through with those, come on and I'll give you some more. But there are things that you need to buy. By the way, one of the things you ought to buy, you ought to read a Christian biography at least every month to find out how God touched and used great men and women through history. You need to read Christian biographies. You need to invest in them. There is so much good stuff. Now, there's a lot of junk out there too, and you know it. Don't ever buy a book by its cover. Don't ever buy a book by its cover, and don't ever buy a book by the picture of the author. (laughs) Buy a book by its content and buy it on the high recommendation of somebody you trust. Just don't go and waste your money. They're too expensive. But invest. How do you use your money? Number four, what do you do with your leisure time? That spills out of what you do with your money. What do you do with your leisure time? Number five, what kind of companionship do you enjoy? Now, we're going to get to that in a little bit later, but what kind of companionship do you enjoy? And number six, who do you admire? I set out at the very beginning of my ministry, and nobody taught me how to do this. God just somehow gave me enough sense to know to do it. I admired Vance Havner. And I decided I was going to develop a relationship with him. He was too busy and traveled too much and had too many people all around him for him to initiate that relationship. So I decided that since I admired him, I was going to invest time and I was going to make the effort and I was going to take the energy and I was going to initiate the relationship. That's the way I got to know Ron Dunn. Everybody that I've ever admired and wanted to get to know I've asked them to come speak. I've spent time with them. I've bought them meals. That's where I got to know Manly Beasley. Everybody that's impacted my life, I initiated that relationship because those kind of folks come into contact with thousands and thousands of people. And everybody becomes a face in the crowd, so I decided I'm going to be more than a face in the crowd. I'm going to get to know because I want to know what those men have got that I don't have. So who do you admire and then set out to spend time with them or read about them or whatever? I admire Spurgeon. I can't spend any time with him, not yet. So what I do is I try to read Spurgeon. I bought a quote book not long ago. It's 4,000 quotes of C.H. Spurgeon. And sometimes I just sit and I just read quotes from Spurgeon because I'm getting to know Spurgeon, although I never will get a chance to meet him until I go to heaven. Hudson Taylor, great missionary to inland China. I would have liked to ask Hudson Taylor some questions. How are you going to get to know Hudson Taylor? He's been dead for years. I'm going to sit down and read the book, The Secret Life of Hudson Taylor. Find out what it is that made him tick. I admire him. I want to know about him. Number two, there's a confrontation with detractors. A confrontation with detractors. Now, there's two sets of detractors. First of all, there are detractors within his family. Verse 21, his own people went out to take custody of him, saying he has lost his senses. He's lost his mind. Verse 31, his mother and his brothers came. His own family, the family of Jesus, the physical family came to the conclusion that Jesus had lost his mind. And there were about three or four reasons that I think they did. Number one, I think because he left the family business. Son, your daddy trained you to be a good carpenter. And he left the family, left the home, and left the family business to become a wandering preacher. Now that just doesn't sound... That sounds like a call to evangelism. That's almost crazy, isn't it, Ron? I mean, man lost his mind. You can identify with Jesus, can't you, Ron? Left the family business to go off and wander around the hillsides of Galilee and tell people about God. They thought he'd lost his mind. The second thing is... He was at odds with the religious establishment. Don't you know that at supper one night, those half-brothers of Jesus were sitting around saying, Mom, man, I always knew he was a little different. But I tell you what, he's gone out there, and did you see the paper this morning? He's got the Pharisees upset with him. They're thinking about forming a denominational... Research committee and looking into his life and seeing what's wrong with him. He's at odds with the establishment. He's bucking the system. He's gone nuts. And don't you know that somebody in his family said there was nothing wrong with the system until Jesus showed up? He bucked the system. Another reason I think is because he made men of questionable character his disciples. He hung around with the wrong kind of people. And the fourth reason, I think, is because he established a new family and they didn't understand why he had this new family, this new kingdom made up of all who would believe. And so they concluded that he had gone nuts. But what had happened was he had so abandoned himself to the will of his father that he appeared to be out of balance to his family. If your security depends on the voices of your family members, you have no security. You don't have any. Something that always amazed me when I was in student ministry is you would have a group of parents over here and they would say, we want you to make sure that you plan all kind of programs and do all kind of things to keep our kids off drugs and keep them from drinking and keep them off the streets at night and plan their lives so they can't get in trouble which is impossible. I mean, folks, listen. If you plan an event on Friday and Saturday night from 6 o'clock until midnight and a kid wants to get in trouble, he can get in trouble before he gets home. I mean, let's just, just face it. You can't watchdog everybody all the time. People take responsibilities for their own lives, but, but people would say, "'Boy, you just, we want you to keep our kid out of trouble.'" And so we'd do it. And this guy or this gal start getting involved. And one day they'd walk in my office and they say, you know, I really feel like God's calling me into ministry. I think I'd like to be a youth minister. And mom and dad would come in my office and they'd be freaked out. My son's going into ministry. Can you talk him out of it? I never could understand that. Very rarely did I ever find a parent that was excited about their children following the call of God on their life. You know why? Because their kid's commitment shamed them. You see, they think, he's gone mad. What's wrong with that boy? Why would he want to be in the ministry? And you know why we say that, don't you? Because we've we've seen what happens in churches to ministers sometimes, and we just don't want that to happen to our babies. And so the family thought he'd gone mad. You know, I haven't heard one interview on the Olympics with the family of Shannon Miller or any of those athletes and say, you know, I tell you what, Going out there and jumping the high hurdles 500 times a day just to make sure you get your stride right. Working on the balance beam. I've heard none of these parents are saying, well, I tell you, I think they've lost their mind trying to win the gold medal. You seen any of those parents acting like that? Oh, they're sitting up there biting towels and gritting their teeth and praying. They're talking to God like they've never talked to God hoping that their child will win the medal. They're out there and they're for them. They're rooting for them. They're wearing colors. They're proud of them. They're going to get back in town. Everybody's going to throw a parade. Why? Because that young person, that child, was a fanatic about a sport. But you let that same age person, young person, get consumed with being involved in a youth group and at church and the things of God and people will think he's gone nuts. What's wrong with us? It said we've got detractors in our own family. I see people who are beside themselves over sports, over ballet, over art, over literature, over the Braves, over their college team, over a lot of things. Right now, I see people and I tell you it's the funniest thing in the world is to watch politics people beside themselves over politics. Absolutely, I mean, you did you see the Democratic Convention? And, and don't say, yeah, the Democratic, because the Republicans are going to do the same thing. Some guy that can't talk his way out of a paper bag is going to get up in front of 10,000 people and give some stupid speech, and they're going to show pictures of people standing out there crying. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Stupid stuff. People beside themselves holding signs up all the time. Just going nuts. Their family's not sitting at home saying, Oh, my son gave himself to the Democratic Party. What am I going to (laughs) do? And you know, sometimes even we as Christians get beside ourselves with good issues like abortion and prayer in school. And if you don't watch it, you can get beside yourself in a good issue and not be beside yourself with Jesus himself. Now, you heard what I said. There are a lot of issues that we need to be standing for and there are a lot of things that we need to be standing against, but we must never forget that the issues is not what Christ died for. Christ died that men might be saved. And the issue is, number one, our relationship with Jesus and then our telling other people about that relationship. That's the issue. And I get concerned when I see Christians that get off on issues and don't get off on Jesus. That's discipleship. There were distractors within his family. 2 Corinthians five thirteen says, "'For if we are besides ourselves, it is for God. "'If we are of sound mind, it is for you.'" Acts twenty six twenty four. Festus said in a loud voice, "'Paul, you are out of your mind, "'and your great learning is driving you mad.'" Now, let me ask you who's crazy. Who's really crazy? Is it the person who gives themselves to this life and to everything that's temporary or is it the person who gives themselves for a life to come? Who's the crazy person? Is it the one that sells all they have and gives it to the poor? Is it the one that sacrifices and gives up and takes from themselves so that other people can have? Is that the crazy person or is it the person who's hoarding it all and bringing it all in and building bigger and better barns and all the while knowing that in this life it'll all be over? Who's crazy? Who's crazy? Who's the fanatic? Who's the one that's out of balance? Detractors within the family. Now, Jesus did not deny the earthly family. He just said the spiritual family was more important than the physical family. That's what he said in Luke 14. If you don't love me more than your father, mother, brother, sister, yes, even your own life also, you can't be my disciple. Every time there's a family reunion, my parents tell me about it. I wish you could come home for the Lee family reunion. I know. I wish you could come home for the Cat family reunion. I know. And you know what family reunions are, don't you? That's where you see people that you don't like, people you never send Christmas cards to, people you never reach out and touch, or pick up the phone and call. They're not on your MCI family and friends either. And you go there and you have nothing in common to talk about with them except what the Braves are doing. And maybe you get your pictures out from the last reunion and you swat flies and you eat cold chicken and you eat potato salad that cousin so-and-so made and you never have liked her potato salad anyway. And you leave and say, didn't we have a great time? (laughs) I can't wait till we do this again next year. This was so much fun. And you drag your kids along. I didn't know you had kids. Well, yes, I do. I've got 14, and they're right here all behind me. (laughs) Now, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that stuff's bad. But one of the blessings of being an only child is this. I understand the significance of the spiritual relationships that have become deeper to me than any physical relationship. Because I tell you what, there are people that I meet and I see, and people in this room, I mean, I've got cousins that I've known for 38, 39 years, ever since I can remember. But I tell you, there are people in this room that mean more to me tonight than those cousins because we have a spiritual relationship. We have been bought by the blood and it has built a bond between us that is unlike any physical relationship. I tell you, folks, the family of God, when it gets together, that's the greatest reunion on the face of the earth. That's when reunions are fun. I mean, give me a dinner on the grounds with God's family and I'm a lot happier. I can eat cold chicken with that group and be a lot happier. But there were detractors within his family. Then lastly, there were detractors within the religious establishment. The Pharisees began to attack, and they said that Jesus and Satan were partners, and they called it verses 22 through 30. They said he was of the devil of Beelzebub. Now, that word Beelzebub means master of the house. It was an ancient god of the Philistines. I want you to hear what the Pharisees called Jesus. They said he is the God of three things. Beelzebub was the God of flies, he was the God of filth, and he was the God of manure. That's what the religious establishment said about Jesus. They attributed the work and the ministry and the life and the message and the miracles of Jesus to filth, flies, and manure. Does it surprise you that Jesus said of them, You are of your father, Beelzebub, the devil. you can't whitewash what these people said about Jesus. And in the parable of the strong man, Jesus is saying, if the power of Satan is working against Satan, then Satan is working against himself. He's defeating himself, and so he does three things. They're not listed in your notes, but he does three things. First of all, he gives them an unanswerable premise. He says, how can Satan be divided against Satan? It is an unanswerable premise, and he uses two illustrations. He uses the illustration of a divided kingdom and the illustration of a divided house and basically what he says is the devil's got more sense than to oppose himself. Secondly, he gives them an undeniable power. Verse 27, but no man can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. An undeniable power, an unanswerable premise... An undeniable power. Jerry Vine said that power was bound when Jesus confronted the devil in the wilderness temptation. It was commenced there. It was continued at the cross. It will be consummated when he comes again. What Jesus said is, I broke into his house. I tore out his security system. I got his keys and I locked him in his tool shed. That's what he was saying. Colossians chapter two verse fifteen. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them through him. First John four four. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I want you to know something, folks. In Jesus, there is undeniable power. He has bound the strong man. Greater is he that is in you tonight than he that is in the world. Number three, there is unforgivable position. This is where he deals with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable position. Verse twenty eight and twenty nine, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, let me just give you some definitions of the word blasphemy. It means to insult, to show contempt, to fail, to reverence the Holy Spirit. It means to engage in defamatory and contemptuous speech against God. It also means to speak abusively against or to misrepresent the Holy Spirit. H.B. Sweat said to identify the source of good with the impersonation of evil implies a moral wreck for which even the incarnation provides no remedy. This is a satanic sin. It is unforgivable to ascribe the work of God to the devil. It is unforgivable. It is not only a sin of the tongue, it is a sin of the heart. It is to consciously and willfully reject Jesus Christ. It is not so much that God withdraws grace as the heart withdraws itself. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he says it is unpardonable. Now, remember this downward spiral that the Pharisees have been going in. First of all, they permitted John the Baptist to be beheaded. They're going to ask for Jesus to be killed and crucified. But remember, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, they kill Stephen themselves. They didn't want any blood on their hand with John the Baptist. They just wanted to instigate the riot with Jesus, but they took the crime in their own hands with Stephen. After the Holy Spirit came, they took it in their own. And so Luke writes in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, "'You men are stiff-necked and are uncircumcised in heart and ears, and always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did.'" Now, why is it that Jesus said, You can blaspheme me, but you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's because God has spoken through angels and through prophets and through Jesus, but God's last word to man is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's final voice. The Holy Spirit is God's final invitation. The Holy Spirit is God saying, when I send the Holy Spirit, I have gone as far as I am going to go to reach men. And if you reject the last thing I send, there's nothing else down the road for you. It is God saying, I have gone to the limits. And there are two signs of committing this sin. One is an absence of of all contrition, an absence of all contrition. And the second one is no desire to be forgiven. No desire to be forgiven. Now, if you know anything about church, about uh, American history, you know the story of Aaron Burr, who was a traitor to our country. Aaron Burr was approached as an old man by a young preacher. That preacher went to Aaron Burr to share the gospel with him Aaron Burr said young man when I was about your age I was at Princeton University and there was a meeting there a revival meeting there and I came close to giving my heart to Christ but I said no and at that meeting I said to God God if you will leave me alone forever, I will leave you alone. And then the historians say that Aaron Burr looked straight in the eyes of that young preacher and he said, and to this point, God has kept his end of the agreement. When you reject the Holy Spirit of God, you reject God's last voice. God's last call, God's last invitation. There's nobody else coming behind the Holy Spirit to give you another chance. You say, well, what if I've committed it? Well, let me just say that having the fear that you've committed it means you haven't done it, and there's still time. It means that if you don't know Jesus Christ or somebody you know that needs Christ, doesn't know Christ, having the fear that they've committed it means they haven't done it. And there's still time. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Cat. For more information about Sherwood, You can visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.